Today is May 29, 2009. I am Karen Aronson. We're interviewing Noam Chomsky, Institute Professor and Professor of Linguistics Emeritus at MIT, father of modern linguistics, philosopher, prolific author, and political activist. He's one of the most widely quoted intellectuals living today and probably one of the most interviewed. He has received numerous honorary degrees in the US and abroad, and even had a research chimpanzee, Nim Chimpsky, named for him, a not altogether friendly act, I think. <laughs> Professor Chomsky, thank you for talking with us for this series of interviews being recorded for MIT's sesquicentennial. You've been at MIT since 1955 for virtually your whole career and for more than a third of MIT's existence. What's kept you here all this time? Oh, I like the atmosphere. It's, uh, I mean, I've had very attractive offers from other places, but never considered them. It's a great place to work. It's uh, you know, a lot of uh, bright, exciting students, a good interdisciplinary environment. Uh, it's just uh, attractive place to be, so never saw any reason to leave. <laughs> what do you think is and should be MIT's role in the world? Well, MIT's actual, it's sort of the core of its role that has been pretty much to create the advanced economy of the future. So, uh, if you use computers and the internet and information technology, uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, whatever it may be, a good part of it is created here and in some similar places, uh, primarily through government funding. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, uh, on the side, there, uh, in, increasingly over the years, it's shifted from being, the years I've been here, from being an engineering school, which is what it was when I got here, to just a science-based university, which had a lot of side effects. For example, one side effect was enrichment of the um, humanities and social sciences department. Because uh, as the student body shifted from engineering-oriented to science-oriented. They just had different interests, concerns, and needs, and the uh, university uh, adapted to them. Uh, but the role in the world should be to, uh, like any other university, a place of free inquiry, uh, interchange, and thought. Uh, uh, this one particular university happens to be focused primarily, primarily but though not solely, on science. Uh, Secondly, secondarily technology, because that's become more and more of an offshoot of science. Uh, a place where students at the most uh, free period of their lives, uh, out of parental control, not yet into the stage of uh, having to put food on the table, can uh, inquire and create, uh, find themselves uh, for the faculty. Uh, same thing, constant uh, uh, innovation. Uh, excitement, both from students, from other faculty, from the outside world, and should be an environment in which they can pursue those interests and concerns in a constructive way. And to an unusual extent, it's been that, I think, during the period I've been here. 
changed a lot. So it was quite different in the 50s. Is it still as hospitable a place for you as it was then? Well, it's, it's, it's grown a lot. So in, in the mid-50s, you kind of knew everybody. You know, so you had a question. You wanted to talk to the provost, you know, his personal friend and so on. But uh, and now it's uh, far, for each individual, it's kind of more impersonal because it's so much larger and more complex. But it remains, uh, at least in my experience, pretty much the same kind of place. How good a fit has linguistics been for MIT and has MIT been for linguistics? It's, it's always been in the school of humanities and social sciences, not, not in the science school. Well, technically, but that's, that was administratively, but not actually. So the, the field developed, uh, the modern field of linguistics to a large extent developed at MIT, but it was in the electronics lab. I mean, yes, the administrative offices were in the modern language department, but uh, the contacts there were pretty restricted. Now, the main contact connections were in RLE, the electronics lab, which is a highly interdisciplinary lab in, in, in those days, in the 50s. In fact, a lot of the particular specific departments that now have exist, exist and have spread around were sort of sitting there in building 20 with a lot of interaction between them. And linguistics fit there perfectly. It was right at the core of the emerging cognitive sciences. They didn't really exist at the time. They were just coming into existence and uh, language was uh, at the core of it and uh, has in many ways remained so. It was an interconnection of uh, mathematical interests, computational interests, uh, uh, study of increasing interdisciplinary study of sort of mind in a broad sense, uh, its implications for other aspects of human behavior and interaction. And so it's, it has a sort of a natural spot. The study of language always has at the intersection of the sciences and the humanities and social sciences. And here it developed very, in a very natural way in the a pretty unstructured and open environment of uh, the old Building 20, you know, Research Lab of Electronics. Mm -hmm. Of course, connections elsewhere. So I worked a lot with uh, uh, George Miller, who's a professor of psychology at Harvard. Mm -hmm. uh, we had close ties to Bell Labs up and back, uh, Lincoln Labs to an extent, but then the various expanding departments here. So. Psychology and the cognitive sciences weren't a separate program. They grew out of the uh, RLE environment. Uh, Luke Toiber was one of those who. And now that RLE and Building 20 are long gone, we're not yeah, so that's long unfortunate. gone. Uh, we, are those connections still there? Is there the connections are there, uh, but uh, you know it's less intimate than when you're in the next room. You know. So the, the disappearance of Building 20 was kind of a sad moment. In fact, there was an effort among some of us to try to preserve it as a historical monument. But uh, <laughs> Jerry Letvin, who was almost at the point of that you know, old lady who won't give up her home when uh, buildings are being constructed all over the place, but not quite. But it, it, was a, a pretty, it was a really wonderful place to work. First of all, it was totally, there was no security, you know, so you could be in day or night. Uh, students, some students are practically living there. Uh, 
no guards at the doors. Uh, it's kind of astonishing to me that nothing was ever stolen. Had a lot of equipment in it, and so on. And of course, this was a this is, at the time this was kind of like an urban neighborhood, you know, factories, uh, milk, working class housing, and so on. But this it was kind of on the MIT, edge of the MIT campus was at on that the point. Too. Edge of the campus, and uh, but it, it was yeah. uh, just a, a very uh, it's kind of a perfect research environment yeah. if you didn't mind the windows falling out every once in a while or squirrels in the walls and, you know. <laughs> but you could open the windows sort of you know. in fact, and now we, we once had a my colleague uh, Morris Halley and I were still in next door offices but we started in 55 we we were off in one corner of RLE which was a second world war temporary building you know right. but it was incredibly hot over the summer so we tried to put in an air conditioner, but you had to have permission. So we asked permission from the whatever chain of bureaucracy it was. And we finally got a note back saying couldn't do it because it would be inconsistent with the decor of Building 20. I kind of liked that. <laughs> so we bought one you and framed asked, the note? asked a janitor to put it in for us. Nobody seemed to care. But you, and, uh, the other thing in Building 20 was that it, it was a temporary building. You could move the walls around. So it was kind of randomized inside, which had very nice properties. So like, for example, I, I happened to find a little corner of it that didn't have a, a room, but had no windows. So I figured I'm going to use it for anything. So I asked if I could use it just for books. They said, sure, fine. So I had a big storage space for books. That was nice. And, and, and your current a, quarters, what are they like? Well, it's, it's, it's a very interesting building. It's You're sitting, in the new sitting, data right, building. Yeah, it's the, right on top of where designed. Building 20 used to be. But right. It's not really a place to work. I mean, so for example, and uh, I do my work at home now. Like I don't even have a computer in the office, but and it's for appointments, interviews, things like that. So for example, it has a uh, has a slanted wall, uh, which is not to make a lot of sense for a faculty office. I mean, what you need is a place to put books and a blackboard and things like that. But but it's a you know it's a it's an interesting, attractive building. It's fine. Actually, I think it's less. It was built to be interactive, but right. my, my impression is it's probably less interactive than the old Building Twenty used to be, uh -huh. which wasn't built for anything. It was just put up. You know. Right. <laughs> Do you think that being at MIT has provided you with a kind of legitimacy as your professional career was beginning to develop? and in your role as a political activist or in other ways? I don't think so, as far as the profession was concerned. In fact, it's, it's, it's a kind of an interesting fact that what happened in the United States has replicated throughout much of the world. Uh, modern linguistics developed on the periphery of the academic system. So here at MIT, not at Harvard, and that's been true as it later expanded throughout the world. It was very different from uh, the, the modern field developed in a manner which was quite uh, different, in fact, antithetical in many ways to the uh, uh, existing disciplines. And it was, not, you know, it, it, was, it was not welcomed. So for example, for years, I didn't publish in linguistics journals. I published in engineering journals or you know, something like that. 
and, and it, in fact, I, I remember my first uh, monograph, which came out in 1957, was published in Holland, but uh, shortly after it, there was a review of American linguistics by somebody, and he had a footnote. He said, we'll mention this because this is Dutch linguistics, you know, and that, that kind of thing. So it wasn't, it, it, we actually founded a new journal, Linguistic Inquiry, run, published by MIT Press. Uh, in large measure, because the work that was coming out here, students and us couldn't couldn't really. There was no natural place to put it within the linguistics profession. I mean, in fact, it has interesting roots back in the tradition of linguistics, actually back to the uh, you know, millennia, back to the early Indian grammarians. But that had been almost entirely forgotten by the profession. I started working in it myself, but um, by now there's a field of a much richer field than there was of history of linguistics but that came out of here to a significant extent off on the periphery of the field and as i say that's replicated elsewhere i know it was a while before people began to accept some of your ideas and and uh, took a while for your first book to well, come I together but i just wondered whether the mit luster even then may have helped convince some people, well, maybe we should be looking at it, you know, MIT thinks he's good. I doubt it, because remember, MIT was an engineering school. Right. It was not then regarded as a as major university. It's right. a place where you went if you wanted to build things. In fact, I mean, they had a very good <coughs> math and physics department, but to a large extent they were service departments, teaching the engineers Mm -hmm. tricks so they could do things. What is MI being at MIT meant for your role as a political activist? I, I think it's maybe well, it's sometimes kind of, caused arched eyebrows and so forth. It's but kind of ironic, the role that it played. Actually, the not just me, incidentally. The, there were faculty peace groups in the 50s and the early 60s. <coughs> And they were largely MIT-based, not, not Harvard-based. Uh, my own role was, RLE, where I was, was 100% supported by the three armed services. And in fact, MIT altogether was, I think, about 90% Pentagon funded at the time. But it was also the center of uh, anti-Vietnam War, academic center of anti-Vietnam War activism, uh, resistance, uh, Teaching right. and so on, and it was there was no interference. I mean, the the record for academic freedom is very good. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but by and large, quite good. What do you think your being at MIT has meant for MIT? Well, that's for others to decide. But it was <laughs> it was the source of a lot of things that have happened since. So the. I mean, I personally was, at the time, there was virtually nothing and maybe one course in philosophy, uh, uh, almost, you know, psychology was practically nothing. And mm -hmm. I, I did introduce the first philo modern philosophy courses and uh, it helped uh, establish what's now a flourishing department. Uh, and uh, uh, the brain and behavioral sciences sort of grew out of the interactions mostly at RLE in, in the late 50s, early 60s. I was part of it along with others mm -hmm. like Luke Teuber who I mentioned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was thinking along the lines of 
people perceive MIT to be very much an engineering and science they university. Did. And then they say, but it has the top economics department and the top linguistics department. And, and in some ways, maybe it's, it's helped convince people that there are there's well, other things. that there's a breadth and, and an excellence to MIT yeah. outside of the things they uh, think of it probably has, stereotypically. But, yeah, on the other hand, I think that's part of a broader development that took place since the 50s. As I said, at the time, it, it mainly was an engineering school. Right. So students were making things, you know, build electric circuits, bridges. Right. Uh, students took, uh, if you were studying mechanical engineering and civil engineering, electrical engineering, you take quite a different curriculum because right. it was oriented towards the technology of the time. Well, in this, after the Second World War, there was a substantial change in the relationship between science and technology. I mean, there had always been a relationship, so Archimedes was a scientist but contributing to armaments, but it, it, there was a qualitative change during and after the Second World War. I mean, the sciences became really essential to technology in a way that they hadn't been. They had been an aid. It's, it's kind of like uh, biology and medicine, you know. And medicine, of course, is paying attention to biology, but couldn't contribute much. Uh, but th this transition took place primarily at that time. And uh, as it took place, it reflect, was reflected in MIT and to a certain extent stimulated by MIT, so it was an interaction. And it shifted the character of the institute altogether. Mm -hmm. So now it shouldn't really be called Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's a, a science-based university. Students in the various fields take pretty much the same courses, maybe slightly adapted to their own interests. Uh, and they also have a range of other interests, you know, mm -hmm. music, uh, philosophy, humanities, and so yeah. on. So it's kind of a university based around science. And I, I don't know how much it's understood in the outside world, but that's what the way it should be perceived. And the role of linguistics and economics and so on just sort of fits pretty naturally into that. Let's um, touch a, do a brief pass through some of the biographical uh, information. Can you talk briefly about where you were born, growing up, your family, your schooling? Um, um, I was born in Philadelphia in 1928. My parents were immigrants. Uh, uh, they themselves were pretty much in a, a, a sort of a Jewish ghetto, an immigrant community ghetto, not physically like scattered all over the city, but their contacts were with social other contacts were with other people very much like them. Now the Jewish immigrant community was split into various different directions and my parents happened to be involved in uh, well, for them, the primary interest was revival of Hebrew. So my father was a Hebrew scholar, my mother was a Hebrew teacher. The, the language was being revived, the culture was being revived, and that's what they did. They, my father ran the uh, Hebrew school system in Philadelphia, my mother was active in it. Uh, uh, all of my friends and my wife and everyone else, we all came out of that uh, milieu. And there, there was, uh, it was not particular. it wasn't, it was observant, but not religious. And uh, it was kind of oriented towards 
Palestine. It was it, it, people would have called themselves Zionists. I did too, but in a sense, quite different from post-1948. So my father, for example, was what was called in those days a cultural Zionist, and a follower of Ahad Ha'am, a leading uh, uh, writer in the early part of the revival of Hebrew a century ago, whose uh, vision was that there should be a cultural center for Jewish life in Palestine. Uh, and uh, that, that was pretty much the, the life. You know, my, they were immigrants from? My father came at the age of 17 from the Ukraine, just in time to escape being drafted into the Tsar's army, which was a death sentence for Jewish boys. And uh, my mother's family came. She came when she was about one from what's now Belarus. And, uh, the, and the language they spoke at home and that you could initially Their own initially native speak? language was Yiddish. But right. there was a Kulturkampf going on in the Jewish community between the Hebrew-oriented and the Yiddish-oriented. They were on the Hebrew side. So I, was, I never heard a word of Yiddish. That was my parent. It was like their secret language, their native language. And same with my wife. She, but not Russian or... Uh, my father knew, had learned Russian, which was considered heresy, where he, he grew up in a little village near... Kiev, and you weren't even supposed to know Hebrew. I mean, you use Hebrew for prayer or like reading the Bible, but right. you're not supposed to speak it. So even looking at modern Hebrew literature, which was developing at the time, was considered heresy. But he went on and learned some Russian, which I, I doubt if his father even knew about. But uh, but that was not part of our background. It was, you know, to the, to the extent that it was not an English-speaking thing, it was Hebrew-oriented. And your schooling, you... My uh, parents uh, were work, working, and they were teaching, teaching all the time. So uh, they sent me from that age one, one and a half, I guess, to a private school, which, and my father was interested. He was kind of a, very much influenced by John Dewey's educational and other ideas. And this was a, a Deweyite progressive school run by Temple University, which had a Dewey Educational Program Department. And uh, I was there from before two until school ended at 12. You know, that was a fantastic environment. In fact, I remember uh, elementary school f much better than high school. I remember everything that happened. It, it was on Dewey Eight lines. There was uh, encouragement of students to think independently, work creatively, work with others, a lot of interaction, projects. So there was virtually no, no, I didn't even know I was a good student until I got to high school because there was no ranking. Right. I mean, I knew I'd skipped a year and everybody else knew I'd skipped a year, but all that meant I was, I was the smallest kid in the class, you know, but uh, didn't have any other connotations. And I think you you've, you've commented that pretty much everybody seemed to thrive in that environment? Well, it, you know, it, like a lot of private schools, it was a mixed story. Uh, there were kids whose parents were uh, kind of achievement-oriented, and there were kids who just couldn't make it in the public schools for problem children, so you get a usual mixture. But uh, there was a sense that people weren't ranked, kids weren't ranked. Yeah. So the, I, everyone's supposed to be doing their best, you know. They're, praised if they do their best. And, uh, it, was, it was pretty much accepted by the children in the school, I remember right. that. And 
Then you went to a more traditional high school, which you I went to a traditional. In the city, there were two academically oriented high schools, one for boys and one for girls. My wife went to the girls one. I went to the boys one. And for me, at least, that's kind of like a black hole. I barely remembered. I hated it. I couldn't stand it. As I say, I quickly learned I'm supposed to be a good student, all A's and that sort of thing. But right. uh, it was, it was. There was nothing there that really grabbed you. Nobody. Yeah, everything I did was on the outside. It was just a place where you went. But you did well enough to to go off to Penn. Yeah, I was. Well, you had you know had to. We were working students. You went to the local school. There was no other choice. And although it was pretty inexpensive at that time, I think it was a hundred dollars a year or something. Couldn't make it without a scholarship, so I got a scholarship and went to Penn, which was in those days not all that different. In fact, Penn was. Uh, I was, uh, I got out of high school at 16. I was pretty excited about going to college. I thought it'd be interesting. I'm not done with this boring stuff, and the catalog looked great and so on. So I took what I thought would be interesting courses, but I found it was overgrown high school. In fact, after about a year, I was thinking of dropping out. But, uh, it, it's changed a lot. Penn is now a major university, but at that time it was substantially a football fraternity school with a scattering of extremely good faculty. So the more academically oriented students who sort of found each other were, many of them, like me, had a variety of interests that weren't connected because you were kind of like attracted by terrific mathematician, in my case, outstanding country's outstanding linguist, a few great philosophers, and kind of these things. In fact, by the time I was a, a junior, I was mostly taking graduate courses and really didn't have an undergraduate education. But you, you contemplated dropping out, I think, and I just did. going off and, and had you not, I guess, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't been exactly, attracted to you know, Professor Harris. I was a 17-year-old kid, I know exactly what I'd do, but I didn't see much point. Did, did your parents care whether you uh, got your degree or not? Or? I don't think they even knew. You know, in, in that generation, you just didn't talk much to your parents. Um, I mean, there were a lot of things they didn't know about our lives. So, for example, we uh, we happened to be the only Jewish family in a uh, mostly Irish and German Catholic neighborhood, which was rabidly anti-Semitic. In fact, pretty pro-Nazi during the 30s, and. And I was boys in the street, you know, you sort of figure out what's happening. But my parents never knew. I don't, we never talked to them. They didn't ask. You know, so. Interesting. Along the way, I guess, as, as a child, you, you've spent a lot of time in New York City, too, with um, relatives of your mother's and my mother's the, relatives their were, friends, the intellectual yeah. circles, yeah, that was political a, circles. That was a different crowd. I mean, her family, at least the part, I got involved in was uh, mostly unemployed working class, uh, pretty radical. Uh, some of them had essentially no formal education. In fact, the uncle who was most influential in my life had never gotten past fourth grade, but he's one of the most educated people I've ever met. He, he uh, was physically disabled, so he was able to get a to run a newsstand under some New Deal program, and that was the one place where there was any employment in the family, so everybody worked there. I did too. And he uh, collected a circle of uh, 
European emigres around him who used to hang around the newsstand and have discussions and political talks and German psychiatrists and so on and so forth. It was pretty lively. In fact, I, for years I thought there was a newspaper in New York called the Newson Mira because <laughs> as people were racing out of the, it was at a the subway, subway stop yeah. and people would run out and ask for the Newson Mira. <laughs> but, but it was a, it was a very lively environment, and ever had a, by the time I was old enough to go to New York by myself, like about 12, I'd immediately gravitate there on weekends and so on. It uh, became an education of a different became sort. an education. I had another related education there. Uh, this is this was around 1940, you know, approximately, and uh, there were uh, there was a big refugee prop, uh, population in New York. A lot of people fleeing from fascism. And, right. uh, and in New York at that time, the, uh, uh, I guess, Fourth Avenue from Union Square down south was full of little bookstores uh, run by some guy who was a Spanish anarchist or something like that. They had real int yeah. intriguing material. I spent a lot of time hanging around those. Uh, the anarchist offices, Freie Arbeiterstimme office in the I guess it was in Union Square and spent time there. I, a couple of my relatives, and particularly my uncle, were also very much involved in such things. And I, I just got a totally separate political education. In fact, the first article I wrote uh, was in fourth grade, so it would have been, I was 10, I guess 1939. Yeah, I know exactly when it was, because it was right after the fall of Barcelona, so it was February 1939. It was about fall of Barcelona, the right. spread of fascism in Europe. It was just a large part of... So you made it out of um, Penn and this got is long before I got to Penn. Yeah. This is long before I got to Penn. Right. In fact, right. what drew me back to college at Penn was meeting Zelig Harris in a right. political context, shared political interests. And he was a professor at Penn. I didn't know it at the time, but he was the leading linguist in maybe the world or the country. But uh, and he kind of, uh, in retrospect, I think he was trying to talk me into coming back to college or something. But uh, at the time, he just suggested, he knew I was planning to drop out or thinking about it. He just right. suggested I take some of his graduate courses. And then he suggested a couple of other faculty members, in particular in philosophy and math, and suggested I take their graduate courses. And it kind of went out from there. <laughs> so you did get through college, and, and then I got recommended got for the college, Society of fellows. fellows at Harvard. And right. that's where you did a lot of the thinking about your a linguistic it, theories. Yeah, that um, was, I was there for four years, and it was right. a, a research fellowship with no particular constraints. So you could sit in a desk in Widener Library in those days and have the whole resources of the library, the university, and a lot of bright you know, young colleagues. So a very intellectually stimulating environment, and again, free to explore. In a way, it was back to elementary school, you know, an environment <laughs> where you're free to explore. Right. Or the streets of New York and the bookstores the streets along Fourth Avenue. Yeah, so as long as I just skipped that high academic high school, you know, just kind of like a continuity. <laughs> how how did you develop your theories that that define modern linguistics? Where where did your ideas come from? Well, partly it was just having acquaintance with other fields like uh, logic and. You know, 
um, foundation of mathematics and other things. There, there are concepts that were developed there which did seem to me to be applicable to the study of language. Now, at the time, well, I'll just give you an example. At the time, the way you, when we were, when I was in an undergraduate student, in formerly in linguistics, uh, a standard, say, uh, term paper would be to uh, go to the International Journal of American Linguistics, a journal where people did descriptive studies of American Indian languages, and take one of the articles, you know, phonology of Cherokee or something, and do what was called a structural restatement, that is restated in a more elegant form, uh, using procedures of analysis. It was sort of like inductive procedures of analysis, which were most extensively developed in Zelig Harris's book, which the first edition of his book was called Methods and Structural Linguistics, and that's what it was. It was methods. In fact, I learned the field from proofreading the book for him when I was, when we met, and he was sort of, I presume, enticing me back to college or whatever it was. Uh, he asked me if I'd proofread the galleys, so I did, and uh, you know, I kind of learned the field that way. But that's what you, you, you learn methods, you applied them and you got a restatement of the descriptive data. And well, that's what we did. When it came time to uh, do an uh, undergraduate thesis, uh, Harris suggested to me that I do that with modern Hebrew, which I knew fairly well, you know, not perfectly, but well enough. So I started to do it the way we were taught. You know, you get an informant, Israeli informant, that was pre, just about, the, you know, from the Jewish community in Palestine, Hebrew speaker, native Hebrew speaker, and uh, ask. Inf there's field methods. You know, you're taught how to elicit data from an informant. So I used field methods, get the data, and start organizing it according with method methods. And after a while, I, I was working entirely by myself. You know, it, was, it just seemed to me that this is senseless. Uh, for one thing, I, I know the answers to everything I'm asking him, except for the parts I don't care about, like the pronunciation, because I care about the pronunciation. So what's the point? So I just sort of put it aside and did what seemed kind of obvious. Uh, intuitively, it is obvious, namely write what's now called a generative grammar. That is, try to find a, a, a set of rules and principles from which you can mechanically derive the structures of the infinite number of expressions of a language, and the structures have to uh, feed into uh, basically two other systems of the mind, I mean, or the body, the sensory motor system, you've got to pronounce it, and the thought system's got to be interpreted. So that's what's now called the generative grammar, but that those days, I didn't know at the time that there was a tradition of doing something kind of similar to that, which in fact goes back to the Indian grammarians of uh, 2,500 years ago. And it sort of persisted in kind of a back strain of the field, but it was not what anybody knew about. It was off there in some exotic place. And by the mid-1950s, uh, the 20th century, uh, you could actually do things like this in a fairly precise way. I mean, after, in the 30s, 1930s and the 1940s, that was the beginning of the uh, really extensive and careful development of the th what's now known as the theory of comp computability. Uh, there were major results in the field. 
uh, theory of computability, recursive function theory. I was studying these things on the side. And it did give uh, a, a comprehensive, uh, the, the ideas were kind of in the air, but this made them readily available in a precise enough form so that you could actually uh, formulate what was being coming to, what I later came to be called a generative grammar in these terms. And pretty much the way you could, uh, on the model of the way you can do uh, what's called metamathematics, you know, the study of formal mathematics as a theory in terms of a theory of computability, which had really profound results, many of them. Uh, so it, kind of melding these things together it, as an undergraduate, it just gave a, you know, I, I did this thesis. I don't think anybody ever looked at it, <laughs> frankly, but uh, anyway, it was done. And when I got to Harvard, I was kind of schizophrenic for a while. I mean, for, for a while, I was, in many ways, for one thing, I was committed intellectually to the belief that the procedural approach of the uh, uh, quasi-inductive analysis of data must be the right one, because that's what all the smart people were doing. But on the other half of my brain, this seemed to make a lot more sense. And I sort of tried to work on both for a while. And at some point, in fact, I remember the exact point, in uh, 1953, my wife and I were taking the graduate student backpacking trip to Europe. So we were on some old half-sinking boat and going over to Europe, and I was completely seasick. And you know, just, I don't know what. Anyhow, it just occurred to me that I was actually getting results from the generative grammar approach, while the other approach was just kind of technical formalization, which wasn't going anywhere. Mm. So I kind of decided, OK, I'll drop that and continue with the generative grammar. Meanwhile, there was a side issue. Uh, in This was the period of behavioral science. Uh, so the social sciences, psychology, they were studies of behavior. And that had a kind of a similarity to the structural linguistics of the period. Um, the topic was data. And the problem is how to control, organize, describe, uh, to organize and describe data and to control performance. That's what behavior psychology was. Uh, and that was just everywhere. You know, it was Cambridge, for example, where I was. The, uh, these were the dominant thinking, philosophy, um, psychology, uh, linguistics, uh, social sciences. And it just never made any sense to me. I wasn't alone. There were few but of us. Did, did you sit around and, and kick around ideas with, with friends? Well, two, or did you mostly other. sort of noodle about this in, in your own mind? Well, there were, or, uh, how did you work? There's a small group of graduate students who were kind of resistant to the prevailing sentiment. So one of them is Morris Halley. Who, uh, who was at Harvard with you? He was at Harvard with me, uh, though he was actually, he was a student at Harvard with me, but he was actually at starting Columbia. to teach at MIT. Right. Uh, you know, he's, he, he's a he was working in phonetics labs, so he was working here. And I don't think he was teaching, but he was in the labs at MIT. In fact, uh, my wife was working in the same lab in the early 50s. I met Morris through my wife. Another was uh, Eric Lenneberg, who went on later to become the founder of what's now called biology of language, went on to medical school and did work. And there were a few others. Uh, one of them was a fellow, a junior fellow, same 
place I was, Peter Elias, who was a mathematician whose specialty was information theory, and we did a lot of discussion and work together. He ended up being chair of the uh, computer um, electrical engineering department at MIT. At MIT. And we made right. But there was a very small number, just a few of us just didn't fit with the prevailing attitudes. Yeah. And, and Were you aware at the time of how transformational your, your ideas would become? Um, I mean, did you step back and kind of look at... Well, you know, there was very little... We were talking to each other. Yeah. In fact, the first person from outside this small group of students who became at all interested was uh, George Miller, who was a professor of psychology at Harvard. And the psychology of the department at Harvard was, uh, it was kind of characteristic of the times. There, there were three major professors, B.F. Skinner, uh, Stevens, George Miller. Uh, Skinner and Stevens both knew the total truth, but it was different truths. So if you were a student of Skinner, you weren't allowed to take courses with Stevens, and conversely. Uh, Eric Lenneberg, who was in psychology, had a lot of problems with it. Uh, and uh, then there was George Miller, who was kind of eclectic, open-minded, you know, thinking about other things. So students who didn't fit into the straitjackets yeah. drifted towards Miller. And I met him. He was kind of interested in what I was doing, and we actually spent a summer together in Stanford working on this stuff and yeah. teaching it. And, uh, uh, and uh, but, but even with that, there was essentially no, no resonance. I mean, the book that I was writing, I wrote, I was writing a book on my own at the uh, Society of Fellows. It was finished in 1955. And, you know, my wife and I ran off about 800 pages on hectographs. I don't know if you <laughs> ever saw them, but every, everything in the world turns purple when you print yeah. them. Yeah. We ran off a couple copies for them, 20 copies for friends. And somebody suggested that I submit it to MIT Press which I did, but uh, came back pretty soon with pretty sensible comments. I, uh, they rejected it, but uh, the comments from the reviewers were that they hadn't a clue what it was. This, right. There's no such field. Where, where does it belong? You know. Right. So this doesn't. So, so they said, it just doesn't make any sense. You know. So it did. What was your reaction? Their reaction. My reaction. Well, I didn't yeah. care much. You know, it was. Uh, yeah, I was at the you age where I mean, here just, we are, we're supposed to be at the frontiers of knowledge, and that's what well, this is? Or? Well, there was no interest in it outside. Right. So, but it didn't matter, you know. In your early 20s, you're thinking about what you're doing. You don't really care what the world thinks. Yeah. So. Uh, Did you have a eureka feeling as you were doing it, though? Oh, yeah. There were a lot of things that just seemed to be discoveries, and uh, I, was, I was excited about them, and a couple of people I could talk to were. But, right. uh, then I got involved to some extent in uh, a formal theory of automata, and that I could publish. You know, I could publish in engineering journals, uh, journals of information and control, which that's is That's by the time you were here at MIT? Or? That's, yeah, that was already by the time I was 1956, and so I was at MIT. And there, there, there was a lot of outside interest. And it's kind of loosely related to linguistics. I mean, the formal systems are similar in some respects to the systems of natural language, not terribly close, but similar. And this could go on in parallel. It's right. since become a kind of a sub-branch of the theory of computation. It's sort of, uh, and other mathematicians got interested and so on. But uh, 
the actual linguistic work was very restricted. The, the when you came to RLE, Jerry Wiesner was head of it? Jerry was head. Did you talk to him at all about your yeah, ideas? I had a very, did he get them? I had an um, interesting interview with him. Um, Roman Jakobson, who was great, was a personal friend, and he who was up at Harvard. He was at Harvard at the time, but he was a leading figure in the whole intellectual right. community. He knew Jerry Wiesner. He suggested I, I didn't have any possible academic appointment. I had no field. When I got my, when I got out of the Society of Fellows, PhD, and everything, was, I had no thought of going into the academic world because there was nowhere to go. But, uh, but. Uh, Jakobsen suggested I talk to Jerry Wiesner, and uh, so I did an appointment with him. And you know, he asked what I was doing. I kind of described what I was doing, and then he suggested that uh, I come to RLE and work on a, a machine translation project. They had a project of trying to, you know, develop computer programs that could translate language, mm -hmm. and I told him, you know, I don't think the project makes any sense. I mean, the only way to solve this problem is brute force. Uh, what's going to be understood about language is not really going to help, and I'm just not interested, so I'm not going to do it. So he thought that was a pretty good answer. And he, <laughs> and he uh, hired me in the machine translation project, but mainly to do what I felt like. Which you didn't do then? No, because I mean, the project made no sense. And over the years, it's, I think, become clear why it made no sense. But it didn't bother him. I mean, no. he hired you anyway. But that's what Arlie was like. Uh -huh. He was just it was just encouraging a lot of innovative, strange people with odd ideas. Some of them worked out, some didn't. But uh, how well did you come to know Jerry? Jerry Wiesner. Um, you know, people knew each other in those days. It was a yeah. fairly small community, so you know, I, we're friendly, but not close personal friends. Uh, soon he went off to the Kennedy administration, went right. to Washington, and came back and became provost and so on, but uh, president later. But uh, the same with the others, like Walter Rosenbluth, who was there, later became provost. And who was, was provost under Jerry, I guess. Yeah, and right. later. But at the time, he was in RLE, like everybody right. was. Jerry Letvin, uh, uh, Teuber, uh, yeah. Almost everyone was there at the time. They later branched out to different fields, uh, different departments. But there, internal to the RLE community, there, there was interest, and there was George Miller at Harvard. This later, by the mid-50s, uh, the kind of Bible in the sort of intellectual community of this, these topics was Skinner's book Verbal Behavior, which was circulating in manuscript when I got to Harvard. And that's what you know, Van Quine, who a main philosopher, studied with him, kind of like the Bible. And you know, I read it. It didn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. So I wrote a, I finally wrote a critical review of it. Which got a lot of attention. That turned out to get a lot of attention. That came out in 1959. I wrote it in 57, got a lot of attention. And it was part of the I mean, there was at that It was point, that long a lead time in getting that published. Yeah, just getting things published. Realize. But uh, you know, it, it was part of a sort of a growing, it was part of the growth of cognitive science and neuroscience related to cognitive science and so on. And there was a, you know, an undercurrent there of uh, discomfort with the uh, 
behaviorist sort of ideology. It was kind of like a religion almost. And this was, so this fit into that and contributed to it. And in fact, there was work by, it, it, it was so considered so out of tune with the mainstream that uh, there's a famous uh, brain scientist, neuroscientist, Carl Lashley, who was at Harvard, in fact, who back in 1950 or so, uh, published a really important article on the uh, structured behavior in which he showed very convincingly that the behaviorist approaches couldn't possibly work, but nobody paid any attention to it. In fact, I, I was right in the middle of all of this, and I never heard of it. I found out about it from an art critic, uh, Meyer Shapiro, and I read it, and I saw, look, this is really important. So I, my, art, my review of Skinner may be the first article that even referred to it. I've, in those days, you couldn't do a database search easily, but I couldn't find any reference, nor could right. anyone else. And it was apparently novel to the people I showed it to. But then there were a couple of other things like that within comparative psychology, which was in those days pretty different from experimental psychology. There was work coming out that was just inconsistent with the behaviorist approach. There was also uh, another development was ethology. It's now comparative zoology with figures like Conrad Lawrence and uh, Tinbergen and others and uh, this small group of graduate students that we were reading that material and you could see that it uh, just didn't fit at all with the behaviorist ideologies. So. so how did you go from all this research and thinking and it, there wasn't a linguistics department there were some language courses and in, in well that was humanities. how a, did it become a department? I mean, how did the, we become the formal bureaucratic whatever. Well, we were in the modern language department and we had to pay our dues by teaching. Uh, Morris, who was there, I forget, he was probably teaching German or French or something, whatever he was doing. But I, I really didn't know any languages. I mean, I'm not that kind of a linguist. And the only courses I could teach uh, were, um, in those days, they had uh, cram courses for PhD students to help them fake their way through reading exams. And fake is the right word. Mm -hmm. These were a residue of the pre-war period. I mean, pre-Second World War, if you wanted to be a civil engineer, say, you had to know French and German because the United States was kind of like an intellectual backwater. The main work was being done in Europe. But all of that changed totally during the Second World War for obvious reasons. And none of the graduate students were ever going to read an article in French or German, almost unbelievable. But they still had the residue of the exams. And the only way to deal with it was for the modern language department to run courses in which you taught graduate students enough tricks so that they could fake their way through the exam and then forget about it. <laughs> and uh, the exam would be uh, had to read and translate a paper in their own fields. Well, you know, you take a look at a paper in your own field, you understand the formulas, you know, you understand the, the international words, and you learn that the verb is over here instead of over here, and so on. You can kind of fake your way through it. That, those are the courses I was teaching. And sometimes they were quite funny. But, so uh, to jump from there to a department, well, a real well, I was, department? Well, I was allowed to teach an undergraduate course in linguistics and philosophy, modern linguistics and my own kind of, our kind of work, and modern philosophy. There was nothing like that at the time. And uh, after a while, there were uh, students were interested. 
So, in fact, a number of the students went on and became professionals, and it's actually one of them was chair of a linguistics department somewhere. There were mathematicians who became interested and so on. And, uh, there was a certain increase in interest among undergraduates. And by that time, we were getting visitors from outside who just heard about it and wanted to know something about it. And by about 1960, we had one visitor who was at a point where he could get a PhD, but there was no PhD department. So the electrical engineering department agreed to let him get his PhD in Turkish nominalization in the electrical engineering department. But it was sort of reaching the point where you could think about a graduate department. And uh, MIT was pretty free and open, so they agreed that we could establish a graduate department. And shortly after that, also in philosophy, because that was building up a similar way. I was, again, very much involved in the appointments and teaching and so on. Uh, so the department just sort of formed around 19. This was under Stratton or, no, a, a graduate. or Howard Johnson? Or? No, this was still under 1960. I think it was, Early 60s? Uh, yeah, then uh, J. Stratton, I guess. Uh, maybe yeah. Howard Johnson. I forget the exact order. But uh, I think it was. Did uh, you care very strongly one way or the other whether it became a department? Yeah, once it became a department, we could have students, we could have courses. Uh, students contribute a lot to the development of a field, mm -hmm. so it became richer, much more exciting. And, uh, the early graduate students went off and started their own departments, and, which is hard. You know, they had to try to work their way into the field. By the, uh, by the late 60s, it was, it was at first the only department actually in the world that was dealing with this kind of thing, but right. uh, there were foreign students, uh, they went back to their own countries. And gradually, by the 70s, it was kind of, right. you know, there were at least bits and pieces all over the yeah. place. Did uh, you do much pushing to make it a department, or did Morris do that, or, I mean, yeah. so who did the, well, Morris the did organizational work, so He did so most of the dirty work. <laughs> he, he, he did most of the, that, you know, luckily for me. Cause <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't that we were pushing against any. There was no resistance to it. It was kind of right. like, sounded like an interesting idea. Fine, let's go ahead. You know. It was just that it had, Somebody had gathered initiated. some kind of critical mass right. and it made and, sense uh, and, to and work through. It was a pretty limited bureaucracy in those days. I mean, right. the, you know, the move from working in an office at RLE to talking to the president was a very brief move. You know, not a lot of stages in between. And I'd, as I say, most people sort of knew each other. Yeah. You know? I'd love to talk a little about that same period, but the other side, what it was like to be an anti-war activist at MIT in the 60s and 70s. Um. Well, you we have to remember the environment. Uh, <laughs> uh, the war in Vietnam actually started in 1962. Uh, that's when Kennedy started the bombing of South Vietnam. And right. Chemical warfare destroying crops and livestock, rounding people up into camps and so on. But there was no protest. I mean, just non-existent. It was a very quiescent period all over the country, in fact. Uh, I mean, the first talks I was giving were in somebody's living room or in a church with four people or something like that. Uh, by the mid-60s, uh, some activism was developing. Actually, in 1965, I, this is all on my own time. I had nothing to do with MIT. I was, uh, I started organizing national tax resistance, or trying to, 
and within a year or two it was much broader resistance. In fact, uh, by 1968 I was coming up for tri federal trial. In fact, it was expanded, and I was giving lots of talks. And so, meanwhile, I introduced uh, with a friend who's also on the faculty. Uh, we introduced undergraduate courses on social and political issues. This was Louis Kampf. Louis Kampf, but it was I did it on my own time. He did it as part of his. It sort of fit into his department, but for me it was just you know my own time. And uh, by the late 60s, he had hundreds of students. And, uh, and meanwhile, the the mood in the university was changing. It was student activism was kind of taking off. Here was late. But by 1968, it was substantial. There were major events that took place, which had a big effect on the institute. So in, there were just a small number of students who were active, but they kind of galvanized the place. It must have been late 1968 or so on. There was a, late 1968, there was a, the students decided, I didn't think it was a good idea, but they went ahead to uh, set up what was called a sanctuary. Uh, for a deserter. There was a marine deserter, you know, talked to him, made sure he understood what he was doing, you know, under, understood the consequences and so on. And, and they just set up a room in the student center and had a press conference that nobody came to. And uh, they said, well, okay, we're going to stay with this marine deserter until the FBI comes and picks him up. Within about, within about a week, the institute was half shut down. I mean, yeah, half the student body was over there all the time. It was 24 hours, uh, seminars, uh, rock music, uh, you know, everything of the kind that was going on in those days. And uh, it had a tremendous effect on the student body. Uh, it had an effect on the institute. One of the effects was that it just raised in the student body and some of the faculty an awareness that uh, we should be thinking about what we're doing. And then came March 4th. March 4th, 1969, when the Institute was closed for a day, uh, just for seminars and discussions and meetings about uh, you know, uses of technology. Do, how do we think about uh, uh, the consequences of what we're doing instead of just you know, making stuff? Uh, we ask what it's for, what we should be doing, should we be doing something else? That was really, the f I mean, you know, individuals had thought about things like this, but this was really the first time that there was a an organized concern about it, and out of that grew a lot of things. In fact, the institute just changed radically. I mean, these became central topics. The Union of Concerned Scientists came out of that. Uh, Henry Kendall, who was a Nobel Prize physicist and had been a Pentagon uh, planner, you know, he was working on planning bombing in Indochina, but he kind of, I remember he came, to, we talked about it, you know, just kind of. Mm -hmm went through a personal conversion and thought, we've got to change this. And he became a leading figure in, uh, in the physics department in uh, what became the Union of Concerned Scientists. And uh, a lot of other things developed out of it. But, uh, and it did change the atmosphere of the Institute yeah. a lot. So these are now kind of live issues Did, did you and Jerry Wiesner ever sit down and talk about what was being done and how it was being done? Did, did he reach out to you because he as the students got more Well, he wasn't um, very happy aggressive. about it. I mean, he, he was you know, kind of on the extreme dovish side of the sort of Kennedy administration. But and he never really accepted the fact that the students and the activists considered him a kind of a collaborator because he thought he was mm -hmm. taking a strong stand against 
you know, the, the war, nuclear weapons, yeah. and so on. But from the students' point of view, that and the activists' point of view, that wasn't the case, and there was never really a reconciliation. No, so. but you weren't altogether um, comfortable, I think, with some of the aggressive tactics that the students used in the end. No, there was by the late '60s. I mean, the student movement. Was, really had a very brief existence, you know, a big effect, but a brief existence, a couple right. of years. Uh, so, so it started in the early 60s, civil rights movement and so on, but gradually grew. By the late 60s, it was a huge phenomenon. By 1969, it was falling apart. Uh, it, literally, I mean, the, the main... There were the November actions, I guess, in Not 69. just that, but it was, you know, it was that but a lot more. And, the, the and main sitting group, in the president's office. Yes, yeah, that was happening here, yeah. Columbia, other places. I wasn't right. in favor of it myself. I didn't like those tactics. But uh, uh, Students for Democratic Society, SDS, which was the nationwide student organization, had a rapid expansion in the late 60s. But by 1969, it was collapsing. Mm -hmm. It broke up into two wings. Yeah. Uh, one of them sort of Maoist and the other the weathermen. And we had a a lot of work I mean, you know, trying to talk students out of going in those directions. I mean, you can understand the attraction, you know, people are desperate, upset, right. a lot of things, but... Uh, Did they get angry with you for trying to talk? Oh, yeah, we had a lot of confrontations <laughs> okay. and conflicts. Yeah. Uh, your friend was right involved in this, but... Uh, yeah, well, um... And a lot of them but, took I a mean, very sensible... But, I mean, in the face way. of the criticism, the MIT ended up setting up the what was called the Pounds Commission. Um, the Pounds um, Commission was set up to, for very... To advise it on what it should do with, with the two research labs that well, were the, seen as being instrumental to varying degrees in, in the war effort. Yeah, well, it was... You were named to, to it that It was more committee. than that. Uh, it, it, were you surprised that you were off? No. No? Uh, it was, did, it was a little difficult. Did you have any hesitation about serving? Or well, I did you consider personal no? hesitations because I had arranged to teach in Oxford for a semester. I was the John Locke lecturer at Oxford, and that was the semester in which they wanted the Pounds Commission to meet. Right. So actually the you dean... were flying back and forth? Well, the dean really pleaded with me to be on it, so I had four transatlantic trips a week. You know, <laughs> teach in Oxford, come here, go to a committee meeting, you know go back the next day and teach in Oxford again. This mm -hmm. went on for about six weeks. But so your hesitation was just that you weren't here and it was um, I wasn't here and I didn't want to give up. I had promised the semester in Oxford and I didn't want to give that up. And, uh, right. and the John Locke lectureship I wanted to give. But uh, and I was giving talks all over England at the same time. It wasn't just teaching because the, the, you know, uh, the Pounds Commission was set up to try to head off a confrontation that nobody wanted. I mean, the protests against the labs were building up to the point where they were going to lead to a confrontation. The administration didn't want it, the students didn't want it. So what you do is you set up a committee, you know, and the committee was going to review the state of uh, Pentagon-related activity at the Institute. Right. I think we have just a minute or two to sum this uh, up. Well, you know, briefly, uh, it, it turned out roughly, actually nobody even knew what the finances were. The finances of the Institute were not even in anybody's head. They were just kind of like chaos. A ton of money was pouring in. It, was, it turned out roughly that the two military laboratories were approximately half of Institute expenditures. But nobody really knew if they were contributing to the Institute or taking from it. 
like how much did the library contributions matter? So that had to be sorted out. And of the academic side, I think about 90% were was Pentagon-based. But there was no classified work going on on campus. I mean, indirectly, everything can be war-related. Except in the political science department. I mean, that had, they were working on counterinsurgency under what was called a Peace Research Institute with closed seminars and things like that. But elsewhere, it was uh, in the labs. On the other hand, the labs were very closely integrated with the institute. So, for example, my wife was a programmer at Lincoln Labs, and I was in RLE, but uh, there was yeah. no particular barrier. In fact, people would go up and back freely. Right. Uh, but a, 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 the real issue in the Pounds Commission was whether to separate the laboratories from the institute. Uh, there were sort of three views that came out. There was what was called the liberals, who said, yeah, we've got to separate them from the campus. There were the conservatives who said, got to keep them on campus. And there were two or three of us, one student, one me, who were called the radicals, who agreed with the conservatives. We were to keep them on campus so that people know what's going on. And it's a focus of attention and concern. And you think about it, let's not hide it somewhere uh, where the same relationships are going to continue, but under an apparent administrative break. Well, we lost. The liberals won. They were formally separated. But it was an interesting time. However, that's uh, it's about the time of the May 4th and these other developments and uh, did make a change. Yeah.